Good Monday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air. It seemed like it had been just a short while um, that I was on the air last up until now. But nonetheless, it's great to be back on the air with you all, my fellow 101 loyal podcast listeners. Well, we are now going to be talking... um, about the the very beginning of what is the Edmund Fitzgerald's final voyage. And this final voyage segment can't all be discussed in one night. And there there's a good reason for it, because there is so much to delve into that led to the ship falling out of radar sight. But what I can start out with is a good lead-off question, or should I say a good lead-off bonus question. In the years after the Edmund Fitzgerald herself was built, and she started to sail around the Great Lakes Great Lakes waters, where there were there ships of bigger sizes being constructed? The answer is yes. However, despite the new comings in terms of bigger ships, being built, the Fitzgerald herself still reigned as the top iron ore freighter. Here's another bonus question. Will there be another iron ore carrier whom will play an important role on November 10th, 1975 for the right reasons? Uh, the answer is yes. Or actually, rather, I should say between the time frame of November 9th through the 10th. There will be another iron ore freighter out there who will be playing an important role for the right reasons. And that ship's name is the SS Arthur M. Anderson. Now, the Arthur the SS Arthur M. Anderson, what I find what I found interesting about this ship, there are a lot of interesting things rather about the SS Arthur M. Anderson, but this ship left out of port from Two Harbors, Minnesota, nearly two and a half hours after the Fitzgerald left out of Superior, Wisconsin. And the two have have some things in common. Like the Fitzgerald herself, the Anderson was carrying a full load of taconite pellets, whereas the Fitzgerald was going to um, Ohio the Arthur M. or Detroit, Michigan. Pardon me, I take that back, because <laughs> I said in uh, the previous podcast from the other day that her final destination from uh, Superior, Wisconsin, was to Detroit, Michigan. So I'm glad I corrected myself there. But as for uh, the Anderson, she was carrying a full load of taconite pellets bound for Gary, Indiana. Now, do any of you all know where Gary, Indiana, is? It is west of South Bend, Indiana but it is just uh, east of Chicago, Illinois. It is in the northwestern part of Indiana. It's, it is in the, really in the southernmost edge of Lake Michigan. Remember, Lake Michigan stretches as far south as Chicago, Illinois, as well as into uh, Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana really was a big steel town uh, city. I'm not sure what what all is even left of the uh, steel industry there, but for a number of years it was a thriving uh, hub in terms of a steel, um, what do you call it, steel industry um, business activities. So uh, 
that is where the, the Arthur Anderson is bound for, for Gary, Indiana, bringing taconite pellets. Who is, uh, not to get off track here, but it is important to uh, talk as much about the Arthur M. Anderson, not just for uh, tonight, but for other uh, podcasts that focus heavily on the uh, final voyage of the Fitzgerald. The SS Arthur M. Anderson is named after none other than Mr. Arthur M. Anderson, who was the director of U.S. Steel Corporation and the vice president of J.P. Morgan Company. Uh, True or false, was the Arthur M. Anderson built before or after the Edmund Fitzgerald? Uh, The answer is um, the the, the Arthur Anderson was built uh, before the Fitzgerald. She was launched in February of 1952, about five to six years before the Fitzgerald um, set out for sale in the Great Lakes. But here is a, a little twist of irony. In 1952, the year the Arthur M. Anderson was built, she measured in at 647 feet. But it wasn't until the winter of 1974-1975 that an extra 120 feet got added on to her ship. Therefore, it turns out that the Anderson was larger than the Fitzgerald. The Anderson was 767 feet long. That's 38 feet greater in terms of length than the Fitzgerald. The Anderson's cargo capacity increased from 20,150 tons to 26,525. So she is right on the same par as the Fitzgerald. So both of these ships could easily compete against one another for carrying um, cargo holds, or not just so much cargo holds, but vast quantity of cargo. Now, who is the captain of the Arthur M. Anderson? The name is Jesse, a.k.a. Bernie Cooper. He happens to be a veteran of 38 years on the water, and by 1975, Captain Cooper himself was was in his third year as master of the Arthur M. Anderson. You know... As I've mentioned from other podcasts, and I will continue to mention it, especially even in tonight's, the National Weather Service, or rather, let alone weather itself, weather forecasting is going to be very vital. It's always vital, but at a time like this, when ships are making those last runs for the year, before the season ends, the weather is going to play a very, very dynamic role. It will either make or break for the safety of the men on the ship and that on the ships, and that is whether men come home alive or sadly lose their lives at sea. So the National Weather Service on Sunday, November 9th of 1975, revised revised their forecast to where the storm moving into the southeastern portion of Lake Superior before moving on to Canada. Basically now the radar indication indicates that the storm itself will have gathered, will gather stronger than anticipated winds moving northeasterly. These winds will become gale force and they will have 
they will these gale force winds will impact all of Lake Superior. And remember, folks, Lake Superior uh, it it borders three states on the on the U.S. side: Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Were the Edmund Fitzgerald and Arthur M. Anderson weather reporting ships true or false? The answer is true. The crews of each ship, roughly four times per day, would measure temperature, wind velocity to wave height. These findings from both ships were sent to the National Weather Service. Both ships had proper equipment to monitor a storm's intensity. Well, I did mention this question from the last podcast, but I'll mention it again to include uh, Captain uh, Cooper. Did Captains Ernest McSorley and Bernie Cooper communicate regularly with each other? Well, that answer is yes, they were. Matter of fact, uh, Bernie Cooper was the first to uh, spot the Fitzgerald when his ship um, left um, out of uh, Two Harbors, Minnesota. And both men have great respect for the Great Lakes and for Mother Nature herself. So I know this is going to sound like an odd question to say. Now, all of a sudden, if the National Weather Service is reporting bad weather, then why are these freighters not respecting Mother Nature? Well, for starters, many of these large freighter ships have experienced rough weather in all their years out on the water. They've seen strong winds. They've seen perhaps 10-foot waves. They've seen stuff that um, most of us can only fathomly imagine. They know what to expect. Many of these men out on the boats, or ships rather, are seasoned veterans. And if anybody's new, they better be prepared because when the gales of November come, you have to expect anything that is out of unexpected um, territory. Because if not, then how can you be? How, then how can you, as an individual, be considered survival of the fittest? In other words, you, you have your crew has to be considered survival of the fittest. They have to be able to adapt to just about any kind of. Uh, weather-related um, um, scenario, and that can be for any time of the year that you're out on the waters of the Great Lakes. But come November, that is when um, Mother Nature can be at her worst, and not just so much at her worst, but knowing whether or not, as I said earlier, the crew of a ship will make or break. In other words, will they come home alive or will there be a loss of life? You know, I know all this sounds unpleasant, but this is a matter of life. And there have been men on ships who have made it home alive. There were some on a ship who didn't. And there, then there were those who were left to tell the tale of survival. So the answer is yes. As I said earlier, the Fitzgerald and the Anderson did report, did, were both of those ships were um, weather reporting ships. And remember, folks, it's one thing to be out on the water, but you've got to know your weather. You've got to know what kind of uh, terrain the water is in because, not, because, you know, from a distance it looks all calm. And, but once you're out there, you never know 
where certain parts of a Great Lake might become choppy or become very um, unsettling to where you may have to change course on where you're, um, as to what direction you're going in. So we're going to talk a little bit more here um, about some of these other unique features of uh, Great Lakes terrain. Now for starters, uh, which island that is on the western edge of Lake Superior, this island apparently was capable of providing shelter to ships. The answer is Isle Royale. Now, many of you are wondering, what is this term, Gales of November? Okay, the Gales of November, this is the 101 interpretation. It has to do with weather, with weather systems or, we, or weather system processes or scenarios that are caused by cold air from the Arctic coming down southward, meeting up with lingering warm autumn air that is still floating in, say, the northern central plains or the upper Midwest. So this is basically a collision of cold air and warm air coming together to, to produce uh, weather that can go from being non-life-threatening to catastrophic in a matter of a few short hours. Now, what, I, what we need to find out is this. What does wind itself determine? I didn't know this until I read the book, but I was also reminded of again when rereading what was essential for tonight's podcast. Well, what, what wind itself determines is the size of the waves. Now, three factors alone contribute to the size of the waves. Wind speed, duration, and fetch. The stronger the constant wind speed, the bigger the wave. So, in other words, if you have winds going at 20 to 30 miles an hour the greater the likelihood of, of a big wave coming through and perhaps uh, dump, dumping water on the, onto a ship. As, as for the longer that, that the wind itself blows, the bigger the wave. Okay? So if winds pick up, the bigger the wave. Now, what does fetch mean? That, mean? that refers to the distance of open water over which the wind itself travels. So the greater the fetch, the bigger the wave. Now, I'm not a weather expert, people. But, nonetheless, this information is very important to tell because, you know, it's one thing for, for us to see trees you know, moving because of the wind, but it's not like there's a pinwheel out there that we can that someone can blow on for the um, for the object itself to be going in a circular motion. So, obviously, there are greater forces out there that produce um, what do you call wind speeds that are so strong that lead to big waves. 
And as we all know, the longer the wind blows, the bigger the wave. Now, the National Weather Service at this time, between November 9th and November 10th, but by November 9th, late in the evening, the National Weather Service forecast team has issued a gale warning, meaning winds of 39 to 46 miles an hour. That is plenty of time for seas to build momentum. In this case, we're not talking the Atlantic Ocean, we're talking the Great Lakes. So when you have winds exceeding well over 30 miles an hour and close to 50, that is a sign or a bad omen for what could come. What weather system, given the situation at hand, was the low-pressure one that Captains Ernest McSorley and Bernie Cooper would go about facing? The answer is a nor'easter. Nor'easters are where cold air moves over water, still warm from the summer. The mariners often would refer to them as the Witch of November. Huh. Kind of like their version of the Gales of November. And uh, nor'easters are very, very powerful storms. Now, given that the Fitzgerald... Here's a bonus question I'm going to address. Given that the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur M. Anderson were longships being freighters that exceeded 500 feet in length... What were ships of this size capable of doing so well at? It was called double duty. For example, these ships were very capable of delivering iron ore regularly to ports in Ohio, for example, and would return with cargo holds filled with natural resources like coal. This helped make the costs of fuel and shipping all the more competitive. So prior to the 20th century, you didn't have any ships that were 730 feet long or or greater. Perhaps the average ship in the 19th century may have been, you know, 300 to 400 feet long, which, you know, did seem, which was big for that day and time. But those ships could not do, those ships didn't even come close to holding 20,000 or more tons of cargo. As a matter of fact... Here's a little um, important history. Around 1869, which is the start, or should I say the start of 1869, 14 families lived around the port city of Duluth, which is well north of Minneapolis. It's not, it's not, to, it's not in the northernmost part of Minnesota. That's where uh, Silver Bay is. But Duluth is 50 miles, uh, probably about 50 miles south of Silver Bay. But by 1869, Duluth is starting to become a, a port city. But seven months later, which we're probably looking at about August or September of that year, we go from having 14 families to 3,500 people. You talk about a drastic, or not a drastic, but a dramatic explosion in population. The industries of grain, commercial fishing, and lumber become the economic strengths. And it turns out that in uh, Two Harbors, Minnesota, that became the state's first iron ore port. 
Now, who wants to know where, who wants to, rather I should say, who would like to know the first recorded shipment of iron ore in the United States? It didn't actually come from um, Minnesota. The first recorded shipment of iron ore took place on June 18th of 1856. You think about it, five years before the Civil United States Civil War breaks out. So in a, on this date, in June 18th of 1856, 269 tons of iron ore were shipped from Marquette, Michigan, being from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, to Cleveland, Ohio, for Cleveland Mining Company. And did the high demand for iron ore itself contribute to bigger ships being built? Yes, it did. Let's think about this question here. Despite improved safety measures on the waters, was there still a false sense of security? Yes. You know, you can have all the techn advanced technological features put into play to help reduce the overall number of lives lost at sea, whether it's on the ocean or on the Great Lakes. You can have all the features you want, but guess what? In the end, Mother Nature is going to prevail. Is it fair to say that Ernest McSorley, Captain of the Edmund Fitzgerald, knew that risk? Yes, he did. But here's something else that um, some captains, especially those of the larger vessels, were not um, always appreciative of. It turns out that captains of smaller boats often used better judgment in putting down anchor and waiting out the storm. But those of, the, of larger boats, or should I say of the larger lake freighter ships, often put their hands or put their faith into, um, into their ship. And also, maybe some of them had too much confidence in technology. Who knows? But the bottom line is, is that the smaller ships tended to use better judgment than those of the larger size. Maybe it's fair to say that some captains of the larger ships were convinced that their ships were unsinkable. Well, as I mentioned from earlier podcasts, the Edmund Fitzgerald was the equivalent to the Titanic. She was referred to as the Titanic of the Great Lakes. Like the Titanic, the Fitzgerald itself was considered unsinkable. But is it fair to compare Captain Ernest McSorley to Captain Edward Smith of the Titanic? No. Uh, without getting off track, um, what I can tell you is that the crew of the Titanic were more concerned about breaking, the, breaking what do you call it, um, records in terms of uh, not just overall speed and of going 21 knots, but also getting to New York in, rec in a record number of days. And as historians know, Titanic was going through an ice field. They knew what they were getting themselves into and did not heed the warnings of other ships. And what I can tell you here is, in terms of some unique history is that back in 1912, when the Titanic herself sank, Ships could turn off their communication systems at any given time, regardless of day or night, 
it wasn't required for ships to have live communication with other vessels on a 24-hour basis. All of that changed in the aftermath of the Titanic sinking. There were many other changes as well, but as for the Edmund Fitzgerald, by well, well after 1912 and by 1975, ships are communicating with each other regularly. Not just the ships themselves with one another, but they're communicating with the National Weather Service. Think about this. In 1912, um, ships like Titanic didn't even have to communicate with a weather station bureau office. As a matter of fact, the National Weather Service at one time was called the U.S. Signal Service. And then it changed its name over time. But, but just remember, people, there was a time when ships did not even have to communicate with one another. I, I think that's actually kind of scary in some ways. Ships went about freely, and, and sadly, in the end, it took a tragedy like the Titanic to have better for ships to have better, not only better communication with one another, but by doing so on a 24-hour basis. So, to sum it up here, yes, there were large ships that perhaps did, um, that made all the effort to put down anchor and wait out a storm, but not all of them. But we do know that, that the smaller ships were probably a lot smarter than the larger ones. Here's a good uh, bonus question here. We've had a few of them tonight, but they've all been good ones. What was the base pay or average pay rate for the average crewman aboard a lake freighter in 1975? <laughs> I'm going to find this one hard to believe, but remember, folks, everything's relevant to the time in which, um, in which say, a previous generation grew up in or just based on the cost of living or just based on other um, in, intangible variables of the day? The answer is the following. The average crewman in 1975 aboard a lake freighter made about $5.63 per hour. But if, if you have overtime and other incentives that come into play, you will be rewarded for all that other work. So $5.63 today would seem like, you know, living below the poverty line. But that was actually rather good money for a crewman to make at that time. Now, of course, if you're the captain or the first, second, or third mate below the captain, you're going to have be making a little bit more money. Now, what is important to note is that by around 1 a.m., the next day being Monday, November 10th of 1975, things start to pick up even more, and it's not for the good. Winds out of the northeast at 52 knots. That's nearly 60 miles an hour. That is definitely gale force winds. I mean, it still is. 39 to 46 is, is what you call entry-level gale force winds, but now we're talking 60-mile-an-hour winds, and to make matters worse, 10-foot waves have already touched the side of the Fitzgerald. The temperature has dropped to 37 degrees. Visibility is down 2 to 4 miles. The Fitzgerald is 20 miles south of Isle Royale. 
and an hour later the National Weather Service issues a new bulletin. The storm warning called for northeast winds 35 to 50 knots and becoming northwesterly at 28 to 38 miles an hour and then with waves at 8 to 15 feet. Mother Nature is starting to unleash some fury. Now, as I've said before, Captains um, Ernest McSorley and Bernie Cooper are seasoned veterans. They've seen storms before. Have they seen storms that have produced waves of 35 to 40 mile an hour, or not waves, uh, gale force winds of of uh, greater than 40 miles an hour. Yes, they have. But just because you've seen those in the past and weathered those storms, is there a guarantee that the next storm that comes through, you're going to be able to wither that one? Every storm, these, every storm that a Great Lakes freighter encounters, it's always going to be 50-50. Does it mean Mother Nature is, going, is rooting against you or God himself is rooting against you on that 50% negative side? No. God's not ruling against you. Is he looking after you? Of course he is. But the forces of Mother Nature are a whole other story. Unfortunately, people, we can't control Mother Nature. And even when the Titanic sank... Man was dealt a very harsh reminder that he was not the most dominant force in the universe. And as I said earlier, no matter how well sophisticated your technology is in going about modifying anything unexpected, even nature herself, even in the present, she will still prevail. And that's what has sadly happened back in 1912 is that Mother Nature prevailed, I mean, for all the right reasons, to say, hey, you underestimated me. You thought you could outsmart the iceberg? Guess what? <laughs> the, ice, the worst part of the iceberg's right at the bottom. And we all know what knew what happened. More than four of the Titanic's watertight compartments, or bulkheads, flooded. And as a result of that, the ship... Um, comes from out of the water, splits into two. The rest is history. Of course, there were no icebergs in Lake Superior, but the, the bottom line is, is that with the um, dramatic change in the weather and the 10 to 15 foot waves and visibility being only two to four miles, that's a perfect storm right there. Um, I guess you could say on one hand that could be like the equivalent of what it, it's its own version of, of what might have happened with Titanic minus the iceberg. But the bottom line is, is that on the Great Lakes, Mother Nature reigns and so do the gales of November. Well, this has been a good discussion uh, for tonight, people, and we are going to be continuing to talk more and more about the Fitzgerald's final voyage and some other in some of the next uh, podcasts uh, coming up. But uh, just remember, folks, that you know, as I said from the previous podcast, yes, being a part of a ship like the Fitzgerald 
is the dream ship that every man would himself would want to be on. And while being a part of a family is essential, just know that um, that for many of these men, they were married. They either had children who were grown or were very young. They had a family to. They had families to support. They also had um, the communities to look after because, after all, these shipping these ships. Uh, basically serve uh, towns. The Fitzgerald serve towns. And without ships like the Fitzgerald, how do, sh- how do some of these towns and cities survive, given that they're in need of taconite pellets? Not just the pellets themselves, but the fact that the taconite itself can melt into steel and be used uh, for an array of um, proper um, resources that benefit communities as a whole most notably Gary, Indiana, Cleveland, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, Illinois, um, other um, towns along the coast of, along the the lakes of Michigan, like Huron and Erie, uh, Michigan herself and Superior. So you have to think about it, folks. It's not just being a part of a ship, but there is a lifeline of... um, of what do you call it? it there's a lifeline of um, supply and demand. And that's what these freighters are all about. Making sure that people's needs are met in a timely manner. And sadly, Mother Nature can get in, can get in the way to where people's livelihoods are destroyed because of what Mother Nature brings. Stay safe, people. Take care, and I look forward to another podcast. Good night.